Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming. The podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu. This is Fintech Daydreaming. We're back. It's fantastic to be back again. It is a new year, a new season of the podcast. We are absolutely convinced that we're going to do even better this year than we did last year. Villa and I have pulled out no stops. We are looking for some fantastic guests like we have today. And we really want to push the boundaries on the discussions around the disruptions that are happening in the banking industry, looking at the continued growth of fintechs and all of the fantastic things that are changing and happening at the moment, everything from metaverse to blockchain to cryptocurrencies and whatever else we think is gonna be exploding this year. But as always, welcome back to another episode. I'm Paul Krogdahl, my name has not changed, it probably never will change. So I'm still Paul Krogdahl and with me as always, I've got my fantastic partner in FinTech and good friend, Villa. How are you, Villa? How's Christmas been? I'm good, Paul, and uh, Christmas was really good. New Year's was even better, and uh, I'm really excited about season five. I mean, 2022 is looking really exciting, and uh, and uh, again, I think we have a fantastic start to season five uh, today. Yeah, of course we do, because with us, we've got none other than Ron Shevlin, who is, I am sure, known to absolutely everybody who moves in the circles that we move in around fintech, banking. I mean, not only is he a chief research officer at Cornerstone Advisors, he is a author at Forbes. He has written a book uh, named Smarter Bank, and, and he's seen as one of the global influencers in this space and a keynote speaker. But I mean, I cannot do justice in this. So Ron, why don't you share with uh, our, uh, our listeners a little bit about the background of Ron and how he ended up being this fantastic uh, influencer in the banking industry? Uh, I guess it, it all comes down to having married the right woman because I have to give her all the credit. So let's uh, do that. But uh, uh, I've been basically in consulting now for a long time. Uh, I was with uh, KPMG, a unit called Nolan Norton, doing a lot of IT strategy work in the 90s and then 2000s with a company called Symmetrics. And then having tired of being on the road all the time, I uh, ended up at Forrester Research, which put me, put me into the analyst world. And for all intents and purposes, I've been an, an industry analyst now for about 25 years. I spent nine years at Forrester, seven years at IT Group, and then I left uh, coming up on seven years uh, now uh, to help Cornerstone start and grow a, a research practice. And so uh, that's that's how it stands. So I have to ask, how do you become an author for Forbes? I mean, that's that's a cool, interesting one. Yeah. So the funny thing is, is was at the uh, end of 2018, December of 2018, I, I I got a call from some guy who said that he's the editor of the Forbes money section and said, would you like to be a Forbes contributor? And it took me all of about, a, you know, a millionth of a second to say, yes, I would. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, went and told my wife, hey, guess what? I just got asked to be a Forbes contributor. 
And she said, uh, how, how does he know of you? And I said, I don't know. I didn't ask. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Somehow they must have read what, you know, I've been blogging now since 2006. I had uh, started a blog called Snarkening. had moved it to the financialbrand.com. So uh, somebody might have recommended me. He might have seen it. Uh, but the funny thing is, uh, you know, in three years now, I've never gone back and asked him how he found out about me. I just accepted it and ran with it. No, I'm absolutely enjoying and loving following you on on LinkedIn and also reading your your articles on Forbes. Thanks. And you know, I I have to admit that you are one of the people, along with a number of others, that have really influenced my circle on LinkedIn uh, and a lot of my points of views as I have sort of progressed in in my career uh, with inside of banking. Again, as a consultant, very much like you. Thanks. But, with, with that in mind, I mean, one of the things that you're focused on is the wider sort of influential base of fintechs, uh, disruption in the banking industry. Um, an awful lot of the work that you're doing is writing articles around what we're seeing happening going forwards. Based on that, if we take the sort of big picture, not technology, but more of business trends, what, what do you think are going to be the big three to five uh, focus areas or trends that we're going to see in the banking industry during 2022. Yeah, the thanks for asking, Paul and Bill. I appreciate this opportunity to kind of share some ideas with you guys and, and your your uh, your listeners out there and your viewers. Uh, but you know, what's funny is the the list grows every year, and this year it's, it's growing uh, even wider. It's just kind of amazing that the list of issues and challenges facing the industry, while they change from year to year, it's, it's getting bigger and broader. And for better or worse, one of the top issues and challenges facing the industry this year has absolutely nothing to do with technology and really nothing to do with the business environment per se, or the economic environment, I should say, but everything to do with um, talent and staffing. The, the great resignation has not necessarily hit banking to the extent it has hit other industries, but the challenge for the industry, the financial services industry as a whole, uh, to find good talent, uh, especially locally, has become a challenge for a lot of companies. And it is really at the top of the list. You know, I do an annual survey every year called What's Going On in Banking, mm -hmm. where I ask uh, financial services executives, you know, what are the, the top issues and challenges and priorities you have for the year? Uh, and talent has uh, never been towards the top of the list, but was actually at the top, absolute top of the list this year. And, you know, there's a couple sides of the coin to this, too. It's not just a challenge for the banks and credit unions and the traditional financial services firms, but is increasingly becoming a challenge for the fintech startups as well. They've always had a, a better chance of finding younger talent and technical talent than the traditional firms, but even they are finding that it's, it's becoming a challenge. So that is certainly at, at the top of the list of issues and challenges. Uh, from a more industry kind of perspective, there are, I think, a couple things that are, you know, really starting to heat up. None of these are going to be, you know, eye-opening eye or revelations for, for anybody listening in, but um, they're starting to, to really dig in. And a couple things, especially around embedded finance yeah. and the provisioning of financial services by non-traditional financial providers. Uh, my colleagues and I just finished up a survey of consumers asking about their interest in embedded finance, mm -hmm. and especially among 
uh, creators, you know, people who are looking to make money on TikTok and YouTube, and especially among uh, gig workers and, and small businesses, there's a huge amount of interest in, in, in uh, doing business with non-traditional providers because of the advantages of, you know, having financial services embedded into the other services that they, that they get. So that is clearly getting a lot of traction. Uh, and of course, we can't overlook the influence and, and trending of, of cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin, of course. But you know, I think more importantly, things like Ethereum and how it's driving Web3 or decentralized finance uh, and so forth. Uh, you had mentioned the metaverse. I would put that on the back burner for 2022. It'll certainly drive a lot of attention and articles, but in terms of real impact, I don't think we're quite there yet for 2022. And I don't even think 2023 and maybe even 24 before we really start to see the impact of that. But I do think that the whole decentralized finance movement, uh, which I think is a real misnomer, by the way, uh, it's not truly decentralized. It's really more about driving things off of cryptocurrency, blockchain, Ethereum in particular. Maybe there'd be something else that would replace that, but it seems to be getting a lot of traction. And the developer community in that space is, is growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's really, I think, what's at the, the top of the list for, uh, for 2022. Staffing, embedded finance, and uh, decentralized uh, crypto, the, 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 the convergence of crypto, Ethereum, decentralized finance, and uh, as Web3 really starts to become a reality. Fantastic. I'd like to revisit back on, on that list that you had there, starting again right at the beginning with you know skills and finding the right labor resources, etc. Do you think that's predominantly in the area of technology or, or in you know, general banking industry, or is it in the understanding of the transition towards more of a platform business model? Or how would you break that down? I mean, this is a great opportunity to let some of our listeners understand what are the skill sets that they should be focusing on to give themselves a good position in the banking industry going forwards. Yeah, so at the certainly at the top of the list are tech, technical and technology skills. Uh, but let's get even more specific than that. It's not just coding skills. It, it's really, I think, at the intersection of business and technology. It's integration capabilities. It's, it's technology business design. Uh, it, it is understanding the impact of new business models from a, and how technology enables that. That's been a challenge for a lot of financial services firms. Uh, you know, many, of course, in, in the U.S., below the, the top 10 or 15 rely very heavily on, on vendors for their technology and to a large extent kind of outsource it. It's not a true outsourcing. But you think about it, they rely so heavily on third parties that they don't have huge technology staffs. But I think they're learning that they need to have uh, a, a staff that has skilled in integration, and in particular APIs, API development, API management, API deployment. And to a large extent, that's not just strictly a, a technology uh, skill. There, there has to be some business design and business knowledge in it. Uh, but there's also the need for a lot of 
really kind of strategists, you know, I mean, clearly they're not looking for tellers in the branch. I mean, that's, that's not, although I, I can, as soon as I said that, opened my mouth and said that I heard a bunch of my clients going, no, Ron, we need those skills too. And they have to be good. And and they make a good point about that. Uh, But, you know, it's about having a lot of strategists or more strategists, I should say, uh, and that's becoming a challenge for for the banking side of the, the coin for sure. Now, Paul mentioned that, of course, that what types of talents would you need need to have in order to be, become part of the fintech industry, especially on the bank side of things. But turning that around a little bit, now I work for a bank myself, and I'm of course curious to hear your opinion on. Uh, do you think banks need to change as a place to work, and how uh, in order to attract this talent? Because obviously, the the talent we're talking about here is is in high demand uh, all over the place. Yeah, I really make you great. You make a great point. And it's one of those things that has frustrated me for years about uh, how sort of short sighted banks have been. They they let fintech steal their value proposition. Look, you go to most mid sized towns in, in the US and probably in, in, in other countries as well and ask, you know, who is it that lent you money and supported and helped you grow your business? And they'll say, it was my community banker. It was my community bank. Who was it that really funded the the, the small business growth in in many countries? It was the traditional banking world. But they let that value proposition sort of be taken away by fintechs who came in and said, oh, we're all about uh, uh, involvement into, into finances and supporting people and inclusion. It was like, well, wait a second. That's what the banks have been doing for years. And they let that value proposition slip away to the point where, you know, now they're trying to claw it back to a certain extent. But I think the cat's kind of out of the bag. So, Bill, I do think you're making a great point there. And I think to a large extent, the banks have kind of lost and then and, and banks and credit unions, for sure, have kind of lost that positioning as being the the supporters, the funders, the the growers of, of small business, and helping people you know meet their dreams through you know mortgages and things like that. Uh, I, I think they've they've kind of missed that boat, and, and I think they're doing it more so than the fintechs are. But the fintechs have stolen and grabbed that that value proposition. There's there's an interesting sort of dichotomy here between what you were saying, Vila, and also what you're saying, Ron. Right. A lot of banks have, for a a number of years, been running around with this whole notion of we're a technology company with a banking license. At the same time, we're seeing banks more and more saying that they need to move towards a as a service paradigm, um, outsource as much of the IT as possible. And now we're saying that we need to increase IT availability or IT knowledge within inside of the bank. So what does the bank organization look like in the future? Is, Is it an IT company? Is it a a very slim uh, bank with outsourced IT or how do we think this is going to look? Yeah, I think there's a progression here. First of all, I, I absolutely despise, despise with a passion that line, we're a technology company yeah. with a banking license. Yeah. And I, I, if I ever hear a client say that, I'll, I'll generally respond. I go, oh, you mean you like to break things and, and uh, you know, flout the, and have lousy customer service? It's it, it's it's a nonsense type of thing. And, you know, the flip side of it, there's a growing uh, meme out there that, and I think it was started by somebody at, at uh, Andreessen Horowitz, 
that uh, every company is becoming a fintech company. That's another bunch of nonsense, guys. It, it, it's it's like saying, well, every company is a cleaning company because they they empty the trash every night. It's it's they don't. It, they outsource it, uh, and somebody else is providing it. So both ends of the spectrum are, are absolutely wrong. But the evolution uh, from the banking organization itself. Uh, I, I think goes from kind of where it is today, where it's sort of like, oh yes, you know, we're we're a technology company with a banking license to a, a we're a risk management company. Uh, it, it's really that's sort of the core capability is is risk management, risk underwriting, and recognizing that you know what, there's going to be a lot of players out there who have money and want to lend money, but need to have the underwriting and risk management capabilities that a bank has developed over many years and to you know, quit fighting for that market share of the loan itself and monetize the capability. Yeah. Uh, and then I think that evolves to a, a true kind of money management capability. Um, you know, I, I appreciate you mentioning the book I wrote, Smarter Bank. The subtitle of that book was Why Money Management is More, Impo More Important Than Money Movement. Yeah. And the banking industry has really saw it, has seen itself over years as a money movement mechanism, whether that money movement is through uh, payments or through loans. And I think that evolves kind of up the food chain to a, you know, almost like a, uh, uh, you know, what's what's that pyramid of like, you know, your your self-actualization at the top? Who was the guy that came up with that? I'm blanking out of the name of that, you know, that Mas pyramid. Was that? Maslow's hierarchy. Maslow's hierarchy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's too early in the morning for me to, to get the brain going here. So I, I appreciate you guys jumping in on that. So there's kind of a Maslow's hierarchy in banking as well, where, you know, security is at the bottom level. And we've kind of, while there are technologies that are changing and helping improve that, that's been in place for many years. Money movement's kind of in the middle, but mm -hmm. money management and money optimization, whether we're talking at the consumer level, at the small business level, and even at the large corporate level, uh, is really where the opportunity is. And so banks need to recognize that the they have to kind of move up the value chain a little bit. You know, let me give you a parallel of this. Go back to the uh, you know, late 80s, mid 80s even, and, and look at how Microsoft evolved. You know, Microsoft started off as an operating system, DOS, uh, and then started moving up to the next layer of the hierarchy, which were business applications like, uh, you know, Excel and Word and things like that. And move, tried and have, have continued to try to move up that hierarchy and value chain into MS, uh, MSN and uh, sidewalk and, and other capabilities and consulting. And so, you know, they've recognized from the start that you can't, you know, to really extract value out of the, the chain, you've got to move up this hierarchy. And I think banks have to recognize too, is that you can't just make money at money movement. Uh, from a payments perspective, not just because of the economics, but also because of the regulatory uh, aspects of this. You know, anybody who's betting their business model on interchange uh, for the long run is, is crazy. You I mean, you're just crazy to bet your business on, on interchange. It, it's, you know, too risky. The rug can get pulled out from you at any point in time. 
Uh, and so where are you going to you know, extract value? It's through money management, money optimization. And I think the banks have to sort of recognize that they have to build towards that and create a skill set and, and capability and competency that builds on money movement, builds on risk management to money management, money optimization. I'd like to, to, you lined me up very nicely there to the second point that you highlighted as a, a key trend for 2022, which was embedded finance, right? Now, now, exactly what you just said there about moving up through that stack for the banks and looking at embedded finance. A lot of banks are worried that embedded finance is going to turn them into a commodity-based business. But what's your view on that? A couple of things. Number one, I actually wrote this recently and I said, uh, you know, everybody's worried about being dumb pipes, right? The, the, well, here was my take is if you can make a lot of money being a dumb pipe, all the more power to you. Uh, you know, you, you don't have to fight. Uh, and, and if the margins are there, take it. It's great. I think a lot of banks are short-sighted on the embedded finance. They, they kind of believe it's a threat to them. But they have the benefit of regulatory protection on this. You can't, as a non-bank, just go out there and provide banking services and lending services and all these payment services. Uh, and so for many banks, it's actually a huge opportunity. But, but culturally, you have to get past the, the idea that, every, that you're the brand in front of the customer. It's okay if the, your customer is somebody else who deals with the end customer. Uh, and, you know, I think there are a lot of smart banks out there. Uh, Vast Bank out of Utah, you know, comes to mind. Uh, Coastal Community Bank, another. Uh, so there's a number of growing banks that are recognizing that, hey, we don't have to be the relationship holder to the end customer. Our relationship can be that provider of services. And it enables them, if you think about it, to expand their business much faster and wider than they ever could on their own. Uh, and so it's a huge business opportunity. I've got a report that'll be coming out probably in the beginning of February, where I've sized the opportunity uh, for, for banks. And, and I'm estimating that this is a, uh, you know, a $50 billion opportunity for, for banks. Um, it's about, you know, it could be you know, around $50 million per bank. And that's, that's a nice chunk of change to, to replace a lot of the, the, the lost overdraft fees that we're going to see over the next couple of years. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a big opportunity, but the banks culturally see it as a threat um, and, and I, as a whole. And, and I think that's really short sighted. So, I mean, the whole idea of embedded finance, along with uh, open banking, the whole platformification of the banking industry, it's all heading in that sort of direction. Does that mean that the, 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 the metrics, the business metrics, the, the revenue metrics, et cetera, that the banks have to measure themselves against have to change as well, do you believe? Well, I'm not even sure if the metrics have to change, guys, as, as, as much as the, the culture and the, the perspective mm -hmm. changes. It's, it's um, the idea that you don't necessarily have to have the relationship with the end customer in order to to be providing value and, and making money in the in the in the industry, uh, if there are going to be intermediaries, and it makes a lot of sense from the consumer or customer perspective, whether that customer is a consumer or a small business or creator or gig worker, whatever it might be, if it makes more sense for them to get a financial service from 
providers of other services to them, then that's just a distribution channel problem or, or, or challenge or opportunity. But I really find that there's a lot of bankers who don't see it that way. They just can't get that. This is simply a new distribution channel. And, uh, you know, what I also try to do for a lot of banks is try to put it in a historic perspective. Um, you know, think about how the, the concept of distribution channel has changed and shifted over the years. Um, it, and, you know, for too many bankers, because they're generally of a certain age, they're stuck in the branch as distribution model, uh, distribution channel model. Uh, but, you know, it's going back at least 20 years now, closer to 25, where the internet became the new distribution channel. But it wasn't just the bank's website. What it evolved to was search. Google was the, the new emerging uh, distribution channel. And it gave birth to the whole search engine optimization industry. And banks had to learn how to distribute their, you know, not just the product through Google or anything, but distribution in terms of how to gain market awareness and, and customer acquisition. Uh, well, what's happening is now is the platforms be, have emerged as the new distribution channel. And now it's becoming where the, the intermediaries who aren't per se platforms, but so many different providers of various types of services to various niche groups in the market are becoming the new distribution channel. So it's important for the bank to understand a couple of things, not just what's happening from an embedded finance perspective, but figuring out who do they best serve? What types of customers, whether it's small business, gig workers, general consumers, segments of the consumer market itself, and figure out who are the potential embedded finance providers that serve those markets well, because that's how they compete. And so give some credit here to a company like Green Dot that has, you know, through its, its um, uh, prepaid debit cards over the years, really started to understand and uh, understand the needs and how to serve the low to middle income consumer market. So as they progressed, they sought out the intermediaries like Walmart and others who served that market because it was a win-win situation. They helped their partners, the embedded finance providers, how to best reach those consumers with the financial products. And there was a win-win. So there's an example of you know, the path that the banks need to go on as well is really kind of first looking back, who is it that we're really good at serving? Uh, and I think the part of the challenge for a lot of community banks in particular, and certainly for the regionals and larger where they're, they don't have those natural uh, affinities, um, you know, I, I always like to use the example of LA Police Federal Credit Union out in California. These guys know how to serve the, the law enforcement community. They work with them every day. Their members are law enforcement. They design products and services. Their challenge is how do we take this beyond just the, the borders of California and in the, in the, in the LA region? Uh, but for many community banks, they don't have that natural that natural uh, affinity uh, of customer base, and so they're a bit more challenged to figure out, okay, what's our what's our growth strategy? Hmm. On the uh, on the notion of being a dumb pipe, now anybody who has ever had to call a professional plumber knows that there's a lot of money to be made in plumbing for sure. <laughs> so I, I don't see anything wrong in that. And for sure, we've seen the same happen in the telecom industry as well. I remember when a 3G was a new thing. 
all of the mobile operators were obsessed about uh, building all these value-added services in, in order not to just become a down pipe. Now, we all think that the telecom industry transform, and indeed, many of them are dumb pipes, uh, but they are also much, much more. They have practically reinvented the business model not to rely on these services. But I, one point I wanted to make is that many times when, when banks have these conversations about the strategy, the channel strategy, about the embedded finance, one of the things that keeps on popping up is that if we do become uh, just an API, basically embedded uh, in, in other uh, uh, customers' workflows, then aren't we missing out on a lot of the data which everybody is telling is so important uh, for banks? Mm -hmm. Because if we just get an API call, uh, a request response, then we don't know necessarily what's going on uh, in, in within the transaction other than the payment information, for example. So do you, do you see this as a, as a valid problem for banks being left out of the data equation? Uh, it absolutely is, but it goes back to figuring out where in this value chain of, of service provisioning do you really fit. Mm -hmm. um, you may be the may not be the, the the holder or creator of the data, but realities. And, and you you started your comment off Villa with the comment about you know being the, the plumbers and being the, the, the you know the dumb pipe. I think the reality is is that the concept of the dumb pipe kind of goes away. You don't survive as a dumb pipe, you, saw, you, you survive as a smart pipe. And the smart pipe means that you might not have the data, but you facilitate the transmission and utilization of data. I mean, the, the, the data is, there's a two-sided you know, coin here. One is, do you have the data? And the other side is, do you know what to do with it? Uh, and I guess there's probably a third, which is getting the data to where it needs to be. And, and, and so, it isn't so much, gee, how do we use data to personalize and do that? Somebody else is going to do the personalization, perhaps, the, you know, the embedded finance provider, the platform itself. But the, the bank has to be involved leveraging its capabilities and, and, and competencies to, to, to say, here's the data we need. Here's the data you need. Here's what to do with it. Here's if it's about being a pipe, it's we're going to get that data out to where you need it to be, you know, as being the, you know, the API provider. It's not just about making the connection. It's also about the utilization and deployment of that data. So again, and I'd be hard pressed to give you many examples of banks who are particularly good at this today. Um, it tends to be the larger platforms who are building competency around that. But even you know Google recognizes, and I just saw an interview. I think it was uh, forgot where it was. Maybe financial brand um, with Zach Mouth, who runs the group, and he's basically saying, "Look, you know, we might have gotten out of out of the Plex product, but we're still committed to you know seeing banks as, as as customers of ours and helping them with their you know businesses." So. You know, turning around, it's actually the, the platforms who are looking to help the banks make better use uh, of data. And uh, so we, it, we, we're not, you know, it's hard to kind of envision the, how the, all the components of the future industry kind of get put together. So things kind of getting thrown up and we're thrown up in the air and we're kind of seeing where, the, where it all lands, I guess. And I suppose also from a, an embedded finance perspective, majority of the capabilities or products that will be implemented in an embedded finance type use case are going to be the low-hanging fruit ones to simple products like payments, simple loans, etc. I mean, a, a common friend of us in his recent book, Paolo Cerrone, has the, the, the very good quadrant where he talks about from your loans all the way up to insurance. 
and the fact that the banks should be looking at moving up towards a sort of more uh, value-based uh, conscious models rather than exactly that book yes um, so I suppose there is there is a, a sort of double I won't call it a double-edged sword here but there is you know the embedded finance does become to a certain degree a commodity-based play but a positive one for the banks whilst they continue focusing in on these more um, you know top right-hand corner products and services that Paolo talks about in his book Yes, absolutely. It's not a threat. It's an opportunity. It is a, a distribute. The, the embedded providers become distribution channels for the banks. Um, there's two. There's two challenges though from the bank perspective. One is figuring out who you know who do they work with, which ones are best suited for them. But there is a technology challenge. They have to be well integrated. Uh, and many and most banks just don't have those capabilities. Some of the earlier providers have, have built them internally, but I think what's really exciting is there is a growing set of technology companies that are emerging to help the banks capitalize in this opportunity. Companies like Sinkterra and Item and Treasury, Treasury Prime come, come to mind. Move, I would throw into that mix as well. And, and so... Uh, you know, they're kind of the, the, the new technology infrastructure players, although I would call them, you know, bass infrastructure players. Uh, and, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're filling that gap that the banks have in not having the technology capabilities. But over time, just as banks wrestled with relying on FIS and Fiserv and Jack Henry for their core infrastructure and core systems, um, you know, many banks are going to wrestle with the economics of having back, you know, bass infrastructure providers, um, you know, uh, cut into cut into into their margins as well. So uh, it's a business model problem, but um, it, you know, it starts with a, a strategic view and you know of the market and where the opportunities are, and to a large extent, you know, cultural um, challenges in, in terms of you know how. To, where do we want to play in, in, the, in the scheme of this infrastructure? Yeah. You mentioned technologies. I'd like to flip a little bit here, uh, go back to predictions and look at 2022. What, what do we think are going to be the sort of top three to five technologies that the banks are going to be focusing in on this year? Uh, the same ones they've been focusing in on for the past <laughs> five years. This is the problem with the banks, I think. If you're looking at this now from the banking perspective, uh, the digital account opening remains the, the top technology that banks plan to make investments in. Uh, and I think it's been that way for the five or six years that I've been doing this, doing this, uh, what's going on in banking study. Um, the, uh, the, the also at the top of the list, uh, you know, are things like APIs and cloud computing, uh, but this year as well, what I, what would really encourage me and what's coming up in the in the new report that I'll be publishing in a, in a week or so, was that um, chatbots have finally made have kind of cracked the list uh, of the the top five investments. You know, we've been hearing. Um, you know, the, the predictions of AI and the transformation of, of, of banking through AI for a number of years now, but it's never really cracked the investment list. And, and it finally has, uh, you know, started to, you know, really find its way into more of the mainstream, both from a chatbots and machine learning perspective. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with the vendor community who's finally integrating and embedding those capabilities into their offerings as well. But that's kind of cracked the list. 
Uh, and, you know, uh, it may not be in the top five, but CRM is out there again, once again, as a top technology that the banks want to invest in. And because we're at an economic cycle where deposits are high and lending is a challenge, digital loan, origi don't, digital loan origination systems is, is in the top five list again this year. Uh, and that tends to be more of a cyclical kind of a thing. But, it, you know, I, I had this argument, uh, well, so, sort of an argument with Jim Maroos, publisher of the Digital Banking Report and, uh, and Financial Brand a couple, a couple of days ago. Yeah. about digital account opening. And, you know, my feeling was kind of like, let's get past this already, you know, get it done, move on to more important things and quit jerking around with this stuff. Uh, his argument was, look, this is super important from a customer experience and customer acquisition perspective. And he makes a lot of good points, but uh, I, I still kind of remain stuck in my view that we got to move on from digital account opening to, to other bigger, bigger problems. Sitting on the other side of the fence, Villa, what's what's your perspective on this? What technologies do you think are going to be the hot potatoes this year? I think the bottom line here is exactly what Ron said. It's yeah. going to be the same five as it was the past five years. Yeah. Uh, things take time. Uh, the base technologies evolve for sure, but uh, the banks need to be, again, conservative and execute on the ones that are on top of their list right now before moving on to figuring out whether they want to build a branch office in the metaverse or or something <laughs> something exotic like that yeah. but uh, and by the way we had jim as a guest uh, roughly about a year ago and one of our uh, most popular guests uh, guests and uh, an episode so i really enjoyed the chat with jim and I, I encourage our listeners to go back and listen if you didn't get to hear it back then but uh, i want to circle back to one of the uh, things on your list for predictions for 22 which was crypto so the uh, Cryptocurrencies obviously is a very popular topic as well here uh, on our podcast. And uh, I, uh, I couldn't help but notice I, I read your Forbes articles quite keenly myself and uh, you were talking about uh, banks going into crypto. And uh, there was one sentence that really caught my eye, which was, uh, was that the banks uh, uh, are finding excuses not to go into crypto. And yet they also have good reasons why not to go to crypto. But I was curious, can you list maybe some of those top three excuses and reasons uh, for banks not being in crypto? And how do you think this uh, is going to play out in, uh, in 2022? Yeah, one of the, the common excuses we we hear uh, and that I hear has a lot to do with the volatility of, of crypto in general um, and the argument that why would we enable our, our customers or our members to, to make investments in this when they could lose, you know, 60% of the value overnight, uh, to which I pull out statistics and show, well, here's three stocks on the New York Stock Exchange that lost 60% of its value in the last year. And I don't see you stopping your customers from purchasing that stock. So that excuse doesn't work. Uh, then they go to the regulatory excuses and those are falling fast. Even I think it was NCUA came out, supported this. Uh, then they have the integration um, excuses. And I don't think we can underplay, at least from a U.S. perspective, the importance of NIDIG's partnerships with practically all of the top uh, core system providers. I think within literally a couple of weeks, they had deals with FIS, Fiserv, and Jack Henry announced, and I believe they've expanded that. I think CSI is in that list now as well, a couple others. 
and and so then they go into the well is this you know really a trend is this just another tulip mania kind of a thing or is this really um you know something that that's going to persist and you know i think there's still a good question of whether or not you know bitcoin itself becomes the a currency of choice but it, you know as more and more people are looking to make payments with crypto, with, with crypto and Bitcoin in particular, it's gaining some traction. But if you look and go back to our earlier discussion about decentralized finance and Web3 and the role of Ethereum, it's really getting hard for these banks and credit unions to kind of you know, stay away from this and, and rely on these excuses. And I also like to pull out the consumer data I have that says that, uh, well, when I last looked, and I'm going to be updating this shortly in, the, in a new survey, but last time I looked, which was actually at the end of 2020, so it's been a little over a year now since I actually asked this question, but at the end of 2020, about 15% of Americans said they held some form of cryptocurrency. I would expect during last year that net number uh, increased a certain, you know, a significant percent. But of those people, I asked, uh, you know, if your bank offered cryptocurrency services, how likely would you be to to get it from them? And uh, it was a very large percentage of those existing, whole, you know, currency cryptocurrency holders who want the services from their bank. They trust their banks to do this. They want it integrated in with the rest of their holdings. They want more mobility and, and, and agility with with those holdings, and they see it from a from the bank perspective. So my take to the banks is always, you know, you guys sit there and tell me how customer centric you are. Here we are. I got to show you the data that this is what your customers want, and you're finding every excuse in the book to to ignore it. And in the what's going on survey that I just conducted, I've got to say, and I wrote, I wrote this in the Forbes article, it's still a pretty small percentage of, of banks and credit unions who said that they'll launch crypto investing services in 2022. Uh, and this might be one of those predictions that I'll get very wrong when, when we talk again this time next year. Uh, but I think we're going to see an acceleration of that number as more and more banks jump on this bandwagon. And you, you guys know how the, the banking world works. It's, it's very much a, gee, if everybody else is doing it, we better, you know, it's the FOMO problem. Uh, we don't want to get left holding the bag here, being the last one, not, not providing these services. So I, I think that number is going to accelerate a bit more. Uh, and I think the, the, the excuses that they offer for holding out is, are, are falling by the wayside. No, go on, Villa. Yeah, no, I was, I was uh, about to say that uh, I'm myself, of course, a little bit on the fence uh, on this topic. I think there are still good reasons why bank banks uh, are finding it hard to enter enter this space. And uh, uh, I've been on both ends of the spectrum with my opinion for a long time, but at the moment I'm, I'm squarely in the middle uh, of seeing how it's how it's going to play out. Uh, I think the um, uh, the utility question is valid still. There's uh, there's very it's very hard to find good utility for any of the cryptocurrencies. Or that's it, most of the cryptocurrencies that, that we're seeing out there, and therefore you're hearing jokes like, "Well, can you actually pay for anything with with cryptocurrencies?" And the answer is yes. All you need to do is to exchange it to US dollars. So um, so that's the uh, that's kind of the bottom line for me when it comes to this uh, utility of cryptocurrencies, and I think it's a key question for banks as well. Is there really any underlying value uh, for these crypto assets? But yeah, I agree to a lot of your points there on the excuses. But I think most of the banks are taking the perspective that 
crypto is an asset rather than a currency, right? So therefore they're enabling their clients or, or the banks that are starting to, to support cryptocurrencies are enabling their clients to invest in crypto rather than having it as an alternative means for buying their milk or, or bread, right? Um, I always make the joke that if, if you were to go and buy um, bread and milk in your supermarket with Bitcoin, the price that it was listed at on the shelf is going to be completely different than what it is when you actually go and check out. So it's too volatile, like you said, to be able to be a relevant and, and good currency for general purchasing of small goods. True, but I would throw one more angle in there that uh, there's, I think, a third point on the triangle, not just asset or payment mechanism. Uh, but, you know, I would point to like Quantic Bank in New York that offers crypto uh, and Bitcoin, I think, in particular, uh, as, as a reward, uh, you know, you get your reward points for payments on your debit card in in Bitcoin, uh, and so yes, it's that's that's kind of the asset, but it's a way of kind of tying in Bitcoin into the traditional deposit product, uh, and I think that's uh, you know becoming a, more and more appealing to many consumers. Yeah, no, fantastic. I, I also. You, you released a, a little report uh, a couple of weeks ago. Just make sure I get the name here right. It was the Definitive Guide to Potential Misunderstanding, Misunderstood Fintech Trends and Terms, right? Really good uh, little paper. I actually think looking on LinkedIn, you, you got an awful lot of positive feedback on that. What, what drove you to write that? I, I agree there's an awful lot of misunderstandings, but is, is it that complex, do you think? Uh, here's the genesis of that. Uh, that was a report commissioned by Nimbus Technology Company. They had uh, commissioned us to write a series of reports. The first one we did last year on embedded fintech and embedded finance. And then, uh, you know, we're kind of fumbling around for, okay, what will be the topic for the second report? And I was on the phone with um, somebody who actually had just joined Nimbus from, from Visa. And as we were talking about the report, and she was saying using terms like embedded finance, embedded fintech, and banking as a service, I, I found myself saying, "Well, what do you mean by that? What do you what do you what do you mean when you use the term banking as a banking as a service? Well, what do you mean by open banking?" Uh, and I think that's when it just sort of dawned on me: wait, if we are having this conversation and trying to wrestle with the definition of terms. There's got to be a lot of other people out there who are you know, wrestling with this as well. So I went back to Nimbus and said, hey, for the second report, why don't we just, we're going to do a glossary of fintech terms. Um, and it is not going to be your generic, you know, here's the definition to, you know, two sentences, paragraph. It's going to be, you know, Cornerstone bringing its perspective. Me and, and my colleague, Alex Johnson, who writes the Fintech Takes newsletter on, on Substack, you know, we're going to bring our perspective to this. And, you know, here's what we think it means. And here's the data to back it up. And so each of the topics we cover generally has anywhere from two to four pages in this glossary. Um, but it, it, that was kind of the genesis of that was let's put our stake in the ground of what these terms mean. We may be wrong. Um, you know, hopefully Nimbus will want to like commission version two next year where we can update uh, things like open banking and Web3 and decentralized finance. Because even since publication, I've read so many things that make me think, 
shoot, I should have included that, or boy, that really challenges what I was thinking there. So with some of these fast moving topics, uh, but they they bought into the idea that we should do this glossary just to kind of put a stake in the ground of what these things mean and, and you know, what, what's the so what around them? No, it's, I, I took advantage of it actually last week on, on LinkedIn. There was um, the, the whole uh, backlash last week of, um, you know, Stalin Bank, the founder of Stalin Bank yeah. coming out with open banking as being a failure. Um, obviously misrepresenting open banking to a certain degree as a technology for, uh, for account shifting. But um, I actually used the definition from your paper on open banking as part of my my post on LinkedIn. So thank you for that. It was, it was yeah, sure. perfect. <laughs> so Ron, what's next for you uh, going forward? It's another book in the pipeline or, or something else interesting? Uh, I don't see any books coming no? up. Um, uh, that's a large commitment of time. And, uh, you know, my business is doing commission research for technology companies and man, I tell you, we're just busier than I've, I've, I've ever been in my career. So uh, the beauty of it is, uh, you know, it's new topics every month and new stuff. I, I do think that a lot of the things that we've talked about today will rise to the top because, you know, the way this works is I'll get a technology vendor come to us and say, yeah, we want to we want to commission a report on X, Y, Z. And I go, oh, that's a great idea. But have you considered ABC or DEF and, you know, get them to, to focus on some of the, the hot topics? So the, the whole embedded finance banking as a service uh, is going to be, a, you know, towards the top of the list of things we look at. The, the whole the transformation and, and uh, disruption of lending in particular is going to be up there as well. Uh, so, yeah, we're busy as anything, you know, doing a lot of commission research, looking at what's going on from a consumer perspective. Uh, and so uh, no books, but, you know, continuing to focus on some of these top trends and how the industry is changing. I'm looking forward to that. I thought maybe just there was a current trend ongoing with Brett releasing his new book and then Paolo, maybe you were going to follow with that, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the way I did that last book, Smarter Bank, was after having you know written 50 blog posts in the prior two to three years, I was able to take a lot of stuff I had already written and kind of reformed it into the semblance of a book. But uh, right now, that's it'd be a lot of it'd be a huge time commitment, and yeah. uh, I have to go back to my bosses see if they want to give me a little uh, flexibility and leeway over the next couple of months. But I'm not holding my breath for that. No, well, we've got all your fantastic articles on Forbes, et cetera. So definitely uh, an awful lot of your thinking still coming across. So that's fantastic. Thanks. But unfortunately, we are running out of time, as is always the case. Great discussions. And before you know it, time has flown and the, there's, there's not much time left. So I was just wondering, before we close out, Ron, uh, if people would like to, uh, to follow up, have another discussion with you, get some more insights, et cetera, how do they best reach you? Uh, there are a bunch of good places to reach me. Both uh, best ways are through Twitter at um, at R at R Shevlin S H E V L I N, uh, LinkedIn. Just find me at Ron Shevlin um, or um, uh, Ron dot Shevlin at gmail .com If you want to hit through email, just don't call me because I never answer the phone. As the person who called during this will, has found out the hard way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, and I hope people will, will check out uh, the uh, fintech snark tank on on Forbes as well. Yes. Absolutely. We'll, we'll include a link to that in the text to, uh, to this podcast episode. 
apart from that, uh, Villa, I'm conscious of the fact that we neglected a joke at the beginning. I don't know. Yep. Do you have a, a quick uh, good but bad joke you want to throw in? Well, at least it's a joke. Let's uh, let the audience determine whether it's a good or, good or bad one. Um, but uh, uh, did you hear that I got into problems with my compliance team again? No. What did you do this time? Yeah, I went and asked about money laundering. Uh, and I find it really confusing why I got into trouble because I was just worried about the Omicron variant of COVID-19. I mean, the least I could do is to disinfect my money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was bad. That was bad. That was really bad. <laughs> and, and with that, um, we would like to say thank you again to Ron. We'd like to say thank you again to all of our fantastic listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this first installment of season five. Uh, we've got much more to come. But as usual, please hit the like button if you've enjoyed listening to us yet again. And who could not have enjoyed this fantastic episode with Ron? Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you would like us to cover. Uh, you know the algorithms on the, uh, the podcast channels. Like it when you leave a comment. So please leave a comment and promote everybody to follow us on YouTube. Uh, we want to get more followers on, on YouTube uh, and get the algorithms up there as well. Villa and I will be back in two weeks' time with another fantastic guest. Uh, I believe we are looking at uh, RegTech in the next episode, so that's going to be really cool. Um, until then, have a fantastic two weeks. We'll see you again in two weeks, and this has been Fintech Daydreaming. This is Fintech Daydreaming.